coming up. On this week's episode of TechSnap, researchers discover a flaw in almost all internet encryption. We'll explain what Logjam is, how you can protect yourself, and what the real cause is. Plus, Linux gets a file system corruption bug, passport ID thieves, a great big batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 215 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on May 21st, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. And our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should probably go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. It's good to talk to you. How are you doing today? I know it's a big I day for you. Good. Is it? Well, I we just had a little we, – we were having a oh, little book yes, talk yes. on the pre-show and yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forgot all about it already. <laughs> I, my brain has been like um, jellified the last couple of days. Because it's a big day. It's a big day. And, yeah. and and not to be outdone, we also have a huge, huge show today. In fact, uh, on the in the IRC room this morning, when I was doing Tech Talk and all until the show started, I've been getting one question over and over again. Is Alan going to talk about the log jam vulnerability? And I, I guess somehow I missed it. I, I, I saw the headline, but I haven't really grokked what's going on. So Yeah. Um, it. It didn't seem to make as big of a splash as I expected. When, yeah. I, when, I, when I broke the news to some people, they were just like, oh, yay. Right. Is it, is it fatigue? <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, well, no, it's, it's, it's just I was surprised that they hadn't heard the about it. The cycle, maybe. So what is it, Alan? What's going on? But yes. So Logjam, uh, which has the awesome uh, website of weakdh.org, <laughs> is a weakness in how uh, the Diffie-Hellman algorithm is oh, implemented in okay. some places. Uh, so the researchers have uncovered several weaknesses in how uh, the Diffie-Hellman key exchange has been deployed. Uh, so we've talked about the key exchange before, um, but I guess I could do a little bit of a, <laughs> a recap, recap on there. it. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, the algorithm that's used in SSL, SSH, and a bunch of other uh, places to actually decide on the secret key that's going to be used uh, to communicate between the two people. Uh, so... Uh, you know, in the classic crypto example, you have people Alice and Bob, and they want to communicate securely uh, by sending stuff across the internet. Sure, but the NSA might be listening, right? Uh, so, you know, in the simplest original implementation of the protocol, uh, you basically you have the number P, which is some big prime number, uh, the letter G, or G, which is a primitive root. Uh, modulus of P, and uh, basically Alice and Bob agree to use a specific prime number, say 23, and a base of 5. Okay. So then they each choose a secret number. right? So Alice chooses 6, and Bob chooses 15. And so they uh, do their math of taking uh, the base number, 5, uh, and doing it to the power of uh, their own secret number, mm-hmm. which would be 6 or 15, depending on who you are, and then dividing it by, or doing the modulus P, which is dividing it but only keeping the remainder uh, of the prime number. So Alice's number comes out to be 8, and Bob's comes out to be 19. Okay. So then uh, to compute the secret, uh, they take their uh, result and come up with the number. Uh, so Alice takes uh, Bob's secret number, mm-hmm. 
uh, and raises it to the power of her, uh, or sorry, takes the result of Bob's math on his secret number. Uh, right, so the right. 19, yeah. not, not his secret number 15, mm-hmm. but the result mm-hmm. that he sent, the 19, mm-hmm. and raises it to the power of her secret number. Mm-hmm. And then does the modulus P again. So hers comes out to 2. And then Bob does basically the same thing. He takes the result of Alice's uh, computation on her secret number, which is 8, uh, and raises it to his secret number, 15, and then modulus 23, and it comes out to 2. So now Alice and Bob have this shared secret number, while neither of them has told the other what their secret number is. And so, yeah, there's a nice diagram on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but by using the, uh, by taking the numbers and basically keep take, raising them to the power of uh, the other numbers, mm-hmm. uh, you can get a big number and you agree on this one big number. Okay. Uh, but to go backwards to find out what the secret number are is really hard, right? So you can take a number and multiply it by itself a whole bunch of times really easily, but you can't figure out what the original numbers were very easily, right? That's called factoring. And so basically it's, again, like most crypto, it's based on a math operation that's easy to do in one direction, but hard to do in the reverse direction. Right. Right, where you take a bunch of numbers and multiply them together and you get this number, but to figure out what the original numbers were uh, from the final number is hard. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, so the key exchange is popular in cryptography. It's used uh, for... HTTPS, SSH, IPsec, SMTPS, anything that relies on TLS at all. It's basically in all the crypto because basically the idea is that, you know, the two sides have come up with a secret number and using that can agree on some middle secret number without actually ever transmitting the secret number they're going to use for their encryption across the internet. Right. They just, you know, I send you what looks like a random number, you send me what looks like a random number, and we use those two combined with our secrets to come up with a third random number without having to send it back and forth. And that's going to be the key for all the encryption. Uh, so the vulnerability that is Logjam is based on the export version of it. right? So if you remember back in the 90s, mm-hmm. the U.S. government mandated that software developed and distributed from inside the U.S., uh, if it was exported outside the U.S., it had to have very weak cryptography mm-hmm. so that the FBI and the NSA could crack the encryption of all the other countries. Uh, so, you know, we had like 56-bit was the limit for their uh, TLS encryption instead right. of, you know, the rest of us were using 128 or 256. Uh, well, they also limited the size of the Diffie-Hellman numbers. And uh, so this vulnerability uh, is kind of like the last one we saw. Mm-hmm. Uh what was it called? Uh, Venom was the last one we just. No, about. no, no. Sorry, the the big one in SSL where it would downgrade. Oh, uh, your yeah, yeah. The freak. the freak attack. Yes, yeah. So it's it's very similar to the freak, except for instead of tricking you into using export TLS, it's cr- uh, tricking you into using export Diffie Hellman. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Diffie Hellman's only used in some types of SSL, uh, or some types of of uh, the algorithms you use for. Uh, SSL. Uh, so basically, in this vulnerability, they managed that uh, they did a test and found that about 8.4% of the top 1 million websites on the internet hmm. uh, and a, quite a bit larger number of mail servers on the internet um, are vulnerable to this weakness. Wow. 
So uh, the attacker with the ability to monitor the connection between an end user and a Diffie Hellman enabled server that supports the export ciphers can inject a special payload into the traffic that will downgrade the encrypted connection to use extremely weak 512-bit material <clears throat> instead of 1024 or larger. Yeah, womp womp. <laughs> That's no good, Alan. Uh, so, using pre-computed data uh, prepared ahead of time, the attacker can then deduce the encryption key negotiated between the two parties mm-hmm. and then decrypt all the traffic. You know, ironically, Diffie-Hellman is supposed to provide an additional layer of protection uh, because it allows the two connected parties to constantly refresh the cryptographic key securing their web or email session. Right? The whole point of some of the newer uh, things we're using, like... Um, Diffie Hellman's been added more recently uh, to do you know that perfect forward secrecy that we talked about, mm-hmm. where the keys will be different, uh, changing all the time. So if somebody ever does get the private key, they can't decrypt all your past communications like they could without Diffie Hellman. Uh, but in the export version, it's so weak that it actually makes it easier for them to do it. Mm. So if someone can trick your uh, server or client into falling back into this uh, export mode, then you're in trouble. Yeah, like for example, when I go to uh, their website right now, the uh, weakdh.org, I get a warning, your browser is vulnerable to logjam and can be tricked into using weak encryption. You should update your browser right at the top of the page there. Mm -hmm. They're giving me a warning. So the so-called perfect forward secrecy that Diffie-Hellman makes possible significantly increases the work of eavesdropping because attackers must obtain the key a new uh, separately a new time each time it changes mm. as opposed to only having one encryption sheet right if you regular rsa mm-hmm. it's based on the private key so if they can manage to get the private key from google or whatever they can decrypt all the data they captured uh before but with the diffie hellman one the two sides are negotiating a new key constantly and you can actually change it in the middle of your session too so you're just rotating the key all the time and that makes it harder for them to crack it they have mm-hmm. to crack each chunk separately but it says uh, logjam is significant because it shows that those ephemeral Diffie-Hellman keys, or DHE, can be fatal to TLS when the export-grade ciphers are supported. So logjam is reminiscent of the freak attack, which was you know downgrading to export version of uh, the actual encryption, right? It, where DHE is just the, the key generation. Isn't it interesting when we, when we intentionally limited the technology like this, how it's come back to bite us like this later on? Yeah, exactly. That's... Uh, one of the stories uh, I have in the uh, additional coverage at the bottom there, it's like uh, how 1990s encryption backdoors have put today's internet in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny now that we talk about this again, when there's a new, a renewed push by the FBI and by the U.S. government to have companies build in backdoors by default, it's interesting now to reflect on Logjam and look at when this was the mandate back in the 90s under Clinton and see how that got, how far, where, that, where that's gotten us. Yeah, uh, so the interesting thing there is that, you know, this is coming at you know just the right time to maybe use it like, hey, let's not make the same mistakes again. Because mm-hmm. as you see, when we do this, it's going to come back and bite us. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things I thought were interesting, Alan. Uh, the uh, the uh, folks uh, that put up the uh, weekdh.org site, uh, they have some interesting resources on the website, including um, a guide to deploying Diffie-Hellman uh, correctly, a-, a spot where you can test a remote server, uh, generating unique groups, common server product uh, guides and instructions for, for like Apache, IIS, Lite HTTPD, Apache Tomcat. Uh, they have Postfix, uh, SMTP, SendMail, uh, Dovecot, yeah. uh, Proxy. It's a lot of good guides on here. I mean, this is this is way better than just a regular branding trying to get a cyber firm awareness well, type that, site. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the good things about. 
Was it Heartbleed or one of the other ones? It wasn't Heartbleed, I don't think. I think it was Freak. I forget which one. But one of them actually, yeah, it had the same yeah. thing. This list yep. of guides. This is how to fix your Nginx server. Mm-hmm. This is how to fix your Apache server and mm-hmm. so on. So you got to give them. You got to give them props for that. Um, do you think this is a serious issue? Uh, yes. Mostly, uh, it's just, hey, we should go and kill off all that export stuff that's on by default. Right. You know, uh, until recently, the settings for SSL were always be accept everything, right? Be as liberal as possible so that every machine will work. Everybody can have some now, kind of encryption. Yeah. Uh, and now it's like, well, if we do that, somebody might be able to trick somebody who would normally be using very strong cryptography into using the weak one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's why we got to... What's well, doing it to my browser? To turn off support for the old stuff. What do I have here? I have a very, fairly modern version of Chrome. I have Chrome uh, 43.0. Uh, well, <clears throat> as of today, I don't think Chrome or Firefox have actually deployed their no, uh, so. fixes for this. Although I have instructions at the bottom on how to fix it in Firefox, and probably something similar is possible in Chrome. Okay. Um, so, yeah, if you have a web server or mail server, you should disable support for the export cipher suites and uh, generate a new uh, 2048-bit Diffie-Hellman group okay. uh, file okay. and use that. And, it, and as you said, they're publishing a guide to how to deploy Diffie-Hellman for TLS properly, step-by-step, and uh, that'll help a lot. Remember, also, they say... Hmm? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think you wore a very uh, poignant shirt today. I'm hearing all of this. We don't have all the patches out yet, but uh, TechSnap recommends you patch your S. Uh, that's not the shirt, but it reminded me of it. Good. Just... Yes. just oh. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but this, the patches are going to, by the time people are watching this, the patches are probably going to be hitting, you know, because mm-hmm. people are going to be watching this over the next couple of days. Also, they say, uh, if you're using SSH, uh, you should consider upgrading your server and client installations to the most recent version of OpenSSH, which supports elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman mm-hmm. key exchange, okay. uh, which is stronger. Uh, also, they say, uh, yeah, make sure you're using the most recent version of your browser and check for updates frequently, because at the, this point, they're not out actually out yet. Uh, and so check for, you know, Chrome, Firefox, Internet Explorer, Safari, etc. Uh, all of them have promised to deploy fixes for this. I'm just not sure how many of them actually got it out or what their timeline looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're fighting. They, we are now at the point where we have to constantly fight mistakes we made a decade ago with this stuff. Like a lot of yep. these vulnerabilities, like the one, one in, um, in Venom was floppy yep. disk controller code from forever ago. That, you just, well, also... The main problem with that floppy disk controller stuff is the floppy disk controller was there even if you didn't have any floppy yeah, drive, yeah, yeah. and there's actually no way to turn it right, off. Right, there's explicitly. a bug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a yeah, compound issue. A bug where, yeah. So you know, it, otherwise, it probably wouldn't have been on in most people's implementations. And yeah. even if it was, it would have been, oh, add this switch, and now you've completely disabled the floppy controller, and you're not exploitable. Instead of, oh, we have to rush out this patch, yeah, uh, because it's not possible. This to This one, that. this bug seems to be so re- prevalent because of like two things: politics got in the way of, of dictating technology design, and then the other thing that happened was our sort of philosophy about encryption has changed over time. Like you said, yep. it was, well, let's just we'll offer anything possible because any encryption is better than nothing. And now it's like, well, well that encryption is basically also, clear text. It's no good, and we've completely changed yeah. our point our point of perspective on that. But that stuff was designed back when we had a totally different perspective. Well, just in general, as uh, in software and so on, it's always been be liberal in what you accept uh, and be very exact to the standard. Or you compatible would be another way to put yeah. it, be compatible. Exactly. And in particular, it was always less, we have to be backwards compatible because yeah. there's still people running Windows XP right. with Internet Explorer 6 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point, we have to cut those people off yeah. uh, 
for the good of everybody yeah. else. That mantra is starting to feel pretty old at this point. Yeah. I'm getting real sick of uh, hearing so that. So uh, make sure any TLS libraries that you use are up to date. Uh, so, you know, no old OpenSSL or whatever. And also that uh, yeah, your configuration will reject any Diffie-Hellman groups that are smaller than 1024-bit. Ah. Don't accept those 512 ones and it will uh, solve the problem. Yeah. There you go. That, no and if you answer. want more technical detail, uh, they have their actual PDF research, uh, Imperfect Forward Secrecy. Uh, Ars Technica has a good write-up that breaks it down a little bit uh, better. So There's some history, too. If you want an explanation of how Diffie-Hellman works, that yeah. isn't me making it up off the top of my head, uh, <laughs> or reading the Wikipedia to you, you did then you should one. check out that. Uh, they also have a proof-of-concept demonstration where you can actually see it happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, I have that link over at uh, Daily Dot. They have uh, their politics column about how the 1990s encryption backdoors are putting today's internet in jeopardy and how we should you know, make sure that we don't let them do this to us Learn for a second round. Learn our lessons. Round. Yeah. Learn yes. our lessons. And off Twitter, a uh, user points out that you can disable all the short Diffie-Hellman key lengths in Firefox by going into your about config. Ah. Uh, and and finding it there. There you go. So if you just reject anything below 512 or 512 uh, Anything below, below 1024. Yeah, right. Thank you. Better way to put so that. So 512 is out. Yeah. Even 768 yep. is out. You right. have to do right. higher. Thank you. And then also, if you're in Firefox, go to About Config, make these tweaks. You don't even need a patch. Yeah. No, that's not so bad. Not so bad. All right, Alan. Well, I'll tell you about something else that's not so bad, saving some serious money and switching to mobile that makes sense. That's our first sponsor this week on the TechSnap program, Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com and get this. Until the end of June, you're going to get a crazy, crazy deal. $50 off your first mobile device or your mobile plan when you bring your own device to Ting. Now, Ting is great because you only pay for what you use. Ting takes your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them all up. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay. So for me, I pay $6 for the line. That's easy. So I've got three lines because it makes me uh, – it's easy for me to give out the phone to different people. It makes it like almost no cost to me because it's just $6. So it makes it sound like I got a lot of phones. But when you figure it's $6 a line and I just pay for the usage, well, one of the phones doesn't get a lot of usage when I'm using one of the other phones. So that's a great saving. So instead of paying per device, I'm just paying for the time I use because all of my devices have shared minutes. And Ting just takes my minutes, the messages, and the megabytes that I use, and they add that up. And that's what I pay. And the great thing about Ting is they have a great dashboard to allow you to manage all of this. They have no hold customer service when you call them at one eight five five ting ftw But again, for a limited time, when you go to techsnap.ting.com, they're going to give you a $50 credit off a device from Ting. Now, Ting has unlocked cell phones from value phones that started like $47, you know, just feature flip phones, all the way up to the best and greatest latest Android phones. They just recently added the uh, OnePlus up there. They have the Moto X2. They have the Nexus 6. I mean, they have the uh, the Note 4, which I'm surprised the Samsung Note 4 doesn't get more attention. It has such an incredible screen and camera that if, if you are a parent and you want a great Android camera phone, the Note 4 is a slam dunk. That's available on Ting. Unlocked. You own it. And then you only pay for your usage. You'll save an incredible amount of money over your two-year standard contract that you're going to get from one of the duopolies. For me, it's about two thousand dollars ting has a savings calculator you can go to right there you just go to techsnap.ting.com and also ting has an early termination relief program so if you're in a contract they'll help you get out of it but you might have heard recently that ting also has a gsm network that also accommodates their cdma network so you can like for me i have a nexus 5 i can choose to go on cdma or gsm which doubles my coverage 
But there yeah. has been a few questions around Ting's uh, GSM coverage. So I'm going to play a clip from Ting where they talk about talk about the Ting GSM beta and things like that because I think some of this stuff, some of the, the technical stuff is pretty interesting to our audience. So I'll play that and give you a little info about Ting's GSM coverage. LazyCat103 on Reddit asks, when will GSM be out of beta and when do you get to say who the service partner is? Right. So as far as beta goes... Um, we're going to, and I don't know exactly when this is airing, but we're going to come out of it in the next couple of weeks. So I, I think by end of April, um, we probably will not be calling it a beta anymore. It, it's tough when you, when you hold yourself to a level of perfection. Um, you know, we're looking at it and saying, oh, there's so much we still want to improve about the experience. There's so much we could do to make it more usable. But that, that really doesn't define beta. What, what we kind of decided defined beta for GSM is it didn't happen to have international long distance calling at all when we launched it. And we said, okay, we really can't, we can't consider it a launched uh, product if people can't call internationally. That's going to be coming out very shortly, and I think we'll, we'll lift the, the beta label. There's so many great things that the product team uh, is still working on in terms of compatibility checks, in terms of activation flow, uh, building the SIM cards in, in, into different aspects of the experience. Um, but that's, I guess that's just the kind of improvement you keep making over time. So, uh, um, so it, it, will be, uh, it will no longer be considered a beta by the end of April, let's say. Um, as far as who the network provider is, you know, you do, you do these partnerships, you, you, uh, you work with companies that have uh, uh, specific things that are important to them. Uh, in this case, it, it's, a, it's a fair request of us. They take their brand name seriously. They've worked hard uh, uh, to make it uh, um, meaningful uh, for their retail business, and they don't want there to be any confusion between our service and theirs. And, and, and we get that, and, and we intend to respect that. Uh, you know, as far as who the network partner is, you know who the network partner is, don't you? I mean, come on. People have written about who the network partner is. Customers have talked about who the network partner is. You know who the network partner is. <laughs> so, allowed to say. Yeah, you know who the partner is. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there. It's such a cool setup because you get CDMA and GSM. You get the great dashboard. No hold customer support. Unlocked phones. Only pay for what you use. And if you're even just a little bit savvy, you know, you jump on Wi-Fi, you're going to save so much money if you do Wi-Fi calling and data. I mean, it really it blows my mind when I get a phone bill for like 35 bucks for three phones. It, it, it melts my head every single time. Yeah. It's great. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there to get the $50 my, credit. Mine's and like the that, show. but it has an extra zero on the end for three phones. <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay, Alan, I'm not going to lie. Uh, this morning when we were uh, going over the show notes, I had yep. I, I think I still am experiencing chest pains from this. You almost gave me a heart attack because I've been filling out my passport and I have had the worst luck on this show. Like I go to PF Chang's, they get breached. I go to I go to Michaels, they get breached. I go to uh, Target, they get breached. And so then we have a story in the show notes that says the US passport agency contractors have stolen applicants data to steal their identities and my mind gets blown because guess what? my passport's in the system right now and i'm thinking have i just been screwed once again it's some kind of bad luck alan what is going on here and should i be panicking uh not panicking no but it's uh interesting story so i figured we would cover it okay all right uh, so three women from houston texas stand accused of engaging in an identity theft scheme in which one of them who is a contract employee of the department of state passport agency was in charge of stealing personally identifiable information for persons applying for a passport so take copies of the passport application, which has, you know, basically every piece of information you yeah. can get about a person. It's really intense. Yeah. Uh, well, because they have to, you know, verify your identity 
properly. Yeah, so but on. it's like weird stuff they ask too. Like it is like very identical. Like if you got that, if you got my passport application, it is hands down. You could you could answer security questions. I mean, it's everything. Yeah, uh, you know, it goes back to like depending on. Uh, your situation and stuff, it can go back to like, you know, what country was your grandmother's mm-hmm. mother born in and so on. <laughs> um, and also, you know, it also provides the contact information in Canada. Anyway, it's like we need three people that have known you at least so yes. long yep. but aren't related to yep. you and, yep. and we'll yeah, say got, that you are the right person. I got my family's info on there. I got Angela's info on there. I got, yeah. Yeah, random people that aren't your family on there and so on. Uh, and then, they say uh, that information was then used to create counterfeit identi- identification documents, uh, which the other two women would use successfully to impersonate the affected individuals in order to fraudulently obtain commercial lines of credit or to purchase iPhones, iPads, and other goods that they could then sell. Yeah. Uh, and apparently the scheme went on for over five years until they figured it out. Oh, ouch. Uh, because of, you know, it's not the one of the areas you would suspect how your information get compromised. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would take a long time to track down. You know, like we've talked about with health records, it's a lot harder to track down than with a credit card where you have all this data in the sure. database that you can just search. Uh, they say no direct details on contractors captured. Uh, what? On how they captured the data? I don't know. Whatever you wrote isn't yeah. a sentence here. Probably is what I meant to write. <laughs> Uh, I was noting yeah. that they – I was digging through the story to try to find if they figured out, like, did they install malware? Did they – what did they do? Were they doing, like, a screen caps? Ah. But yeah, I think you just missed the word how in the yeah, sentence somewhere. Yeah. So there's no great details on how the contractor captured the data in question, uh, but we can make reasonable guesses based on a bunch of the recent IT security policy changes that the Department of State is making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, according to the Washington Post, the U.S. Passport Agency has decided uh, last month – to ban both federal employees and private contractors from bringing devices equipped with a camera into the office where they review and process requests for passports. So maybe they were just taking uh, cell phone photos of the documents. Although, you know, it's like, well, how about banning USB devices and stuff where people could take the computerized version of the files? Right. Yeah, why wasn't that a policy Uh, already, too? (laughs) Yes. Apparently, this decision was influenced by the Houston incident, indicating that it's possible that the people were taking pictures of the private information uh, and smuggling them out. Uh, hmm. And then you have a quote here from a senior threat researcher at Trend Micro who wrote a helpful overview of the malicious insider problem and offered some advice on how to prevent and mitigate these types of insider threats. So, you know, since we know that a large portion of all these threats are insider threats, uh, a general article on, on how to deal with that seems to be, you know, something a lot of people would want to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the basic premise is the insider threat can be broken down into three issues. Why do people become threats? Right? Is it just they don't like their job and they right. don't want it, or is, is it, it money? money or whatever? Yeah. Uh, what damage can they do, and how can that be prevented? Yeah, and that's basically. And of course, each one is a huge topic on its own, but that makes sense. Yeah, and we have that linked in the show notes. I thought. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's within Trend Micro's best interest to write this kind of thing up. But uh, he says uh, a lot of it. A lot of it comes down to motivations are the mice acronym: money, ideology, coercion, and ego. Yep, those. So, that's your standard spy tactics. <laughs> <laughs> so sounds about right. That's, that's how you compromise a person. You 
appeal to one of those things. So it makes me – so a couple of things jumped out at me about this story. Um, first of all, it is interesting that it took us so long, took five years to track down where it was coming from. And two things about that. Number one, it makes me wonder why did it take that long? Was it because we were just trusting the people in that position? And, and number two – would it be easier to track if they maybe were using a more electronic process where there was more auditing involved? If it was less of a manual paper process, perhaps it would be yeah. easier to audit. So that's one of the downsides of things not being online. True, they can't be hacked, but at the same time, you also don't have this audit trail. Uh, and the other thing that jumped out at me is it was a contractor. And I wonder, yeah. I wonder what that's about. And I wonder if, there's, if, if they're doing the proper security well, screening for contractors guess- and – they didn't really say, was it that the U.S. Passport Agency hired a contracting company that brought a bunch of people in to do this, or were they just hiring individual people as contractors? They call out the individual Chloe McKeldon, or whatever her name is, right. by name. Yeah, and so in that case, it seems like that's just the government hiring people as a contractor instead of an employee, so they don't get the, and the and benefits the- of being a federal employee. So the article goes on to say the problem in this case may be cost cutting, according to Arnold, which is one of the federal employees, uh, president of the National F- uh, Federal Federation of Federal Employees uh, Union. He said the problem is cost cutting. Of course, he's he, re- he represents the union, but he says the problem is cost cutting. In the past few years, the passport agency has been employing contracts to do jobs that used to be higher responsibility government posts. Exactly. So it used to be someone that was actually hired as a government employee went through the security screening. And got the you know the pensions and the, all the stuff that goes with being a federal employee. I don't know that the contractor is any more of a security risk in the end. But well, do you think though? I mean, do they maybe have a little less invested? This isn't a, this isn't a well, career for them. There, I right? would say, exactly. I definitely say they have less invested in it and so on. And maybe for certain jobs that are high security, it's better to have someone that is in that more. Vested situation. Vested, yeah. I mean, that's it's I, as somebody who used to be a contractor, <laughs> I hate kind of putting that out there. But you do like when it really, really, really comes down to something like this, when the, when the, when it's just too tempting, when there's too much money, or you know, maybe you feel like you're like an Edward Snowden, you feel like there's some sort of duty on your shoulders. Like when it's just when the when the, when it's too tempting, you have to wonder if the contractors maybe aren't the best to trust. I don't know. I put that out there to the audience to decide because I hate to yeah. I hate to think that's true. Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Well, what you need is just a foodoo to keep your contractors honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, to me, it seems like a way to – you need. it seems like anytime you're dealing with really confidential information, financial, banking, uh, medical, passport stuff, it seems to me like you got to have really, really stringent auditing in place. you got to be able to verify constantly. That's Yeah, uh, and that's really the problem is that most places aren't, and yeah. it's worse for contractors. And- yeah. Yep. All right, Mr. Jude, let's take a moment and thank our next sponsor. That's DigitalOcean, and I think you should check mm-hmm. them out. Audience, DigitalOcean is perfect for you. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a cloud server. If you're an expert user, you're going to love a lot of the features like the templates, the snapshots, the HTML5 console that works in your web browser from post all the way up to boot. You're going to love all that stuff. If you're a new beginner, you're going to love how simple and easy it is to get started and how fast. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans, they start only $5 a month. And you'll get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean is SSDs all throughout. It is a fantastic user experience riding on top of the best I.O. at Tier 1 bandwidth data centers. It's really awesome. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany, and London. And these are really great centers. Uh, Check out their Instagram feed, their DigitalOcean, or like their G Plus feed. 
they have posted some of the best looking server porn I have seen in a long time. It is great looking setup, clean. I mean, I just I appreciate all of it because it's not just their interface that's amazing, but it's all the way down to the data center. They really take care of this stuff. But their interface, let's talk about that for a minute. It is yes. so simple, so clean and intuitive, but yet very powerful, surprisingly powerful. I uh, like, you know, being able to name your server, choose your choose the size, choose the region you're going to deploy it to, choose the distribution you want to deploy and if you want a 64-bit or 32-bit and you create that droplet, you'll probably be starting in less than 55 seconds. It's so awesome. And then from there there on you have DNS management, you can do full DNS management, you can do snapshots, you can build a server from a snapshot you've already taken, you can back up before you make a big configuration change. And then the number one thing I really love are these one-click installations. Deploy things like GitLab or Ruby on Rails or Docker, and they're using it, they're using great technology like Doku to pull all of this off. And of course, they now have free BSD up at DigitalOcean, so you can rock a free BSD rig when you go to DigitalOcean. Just use our promo code. This will help us out. It supports the TechSnap program. Let's DigitalOcean know that you want TechSnap to continue on for another 215 weeks. So use our promo code SnapOcean when you check out. SnapOcean. It's all one word, lowercase. I don't really need to say when you check out because you can actually apply it to your account anytime. It's one of the things I like about DigitalOcean, how I run my account is I have different payment methods attached to it. And when my balance gets low, I just charge it up a little bit. And that's nice if I've got like, I have a, I have a, I have a PayPal account that I'll use just for Steam purchases. And the nice thing about that is sometimes Steam games leave, you know, you buy something, you have a couple of dollars left. I just toss that into my DigitalOcean account, and I'm just running for a couple of days because the prices are so, so low. You can even do hourly pricing, which is crazy. Great. And if you use our promo code, SnapOcean, then you're going to get a $10 credit. You try out that $5 rig two months or go get yourself a nice big rig. Try it one month. There's so many great ways to go. And on top of all of that, they have great documentation, a great community, and they're hiring again. They're looking for Linux sysadmins. They're looking for writers. They're looking for tutorials. You can make some money writing for DigitalOcean, and if you have an yeah. eye for content editing, they need to talk to you. They'd like to hire some Jupiter Broadcasting audience members, so go over to DigitalOcean and check out their open positions, write tutorials for their community. You'll make a little bit of money on the side. If you are an editor and you've got some skills there, talk to them. If you've got some admin experience, I'm sure they're looking for some FreeBSD guys as well. Check them out. They've told me specifically to pass it along to you guys. They know that Jupiter Broadcasting has some of the best audience members out there, really smart, sharp people, so they want to hire you. Last time they went around into this, they did the same thing. So I'm putting the word out there. Check out their open careers. Also, use our promo code SnapOcean. Support the show. Get a $10 credit and go build yourself a cool rig up in the cloud. I've used it for all kinds of things, from Minecraft to OwnCloud. You'll find a use case for it. DigitalOcean.com and SnapOcean when you check out. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock super, super duper hard. Now, this next story, Alan, as soon as I saw it hit the headlines, I knew we were going to have to talk about it on the TechSnap program. Yes. Makes me shake my head. A extended for corruption bug has worked its way into a recent Linux kernel. What's going on, Alan? Yes. Well, the information is confusing about it a little bit. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. So, yes, uh, uh, the new Linux kernel apparently corrupts your file systems. <laughs> it appears that the, uh, the current uh, 4.0. latest kernel is plagued by an ext4 file system corruption issue. Uh, although, on a possibly positive note, it mostly seems to only affect people using the Linux RAID uh, with ext4. Yeah. RAID 0, I think, uh, right? Yes, but yeah. I think that's just the people that have complained the most so uh, far. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, Part of it is, you know, if you're using RAID 1 or something, you have the right hole. So it might be that it's just corrupting one of the disks, and then you're not reading from that one, and so you're not noticing necessarily. And who knows what's actually happening mm-hmm. uh, until they've, you know, definitely uh, identified the bug. It could be an issue. 
Um, but yeah, uh, so there's, there have been several reports of people affected by ext4 data corruption uh, mm-hmm. using the Linux 4.0.2 kernel. They say all ext4 RAID 0 users on the Linux 4.0 or 4.1 uh, Git branch are advised to downgrade until the uh, 4.1 release candidate or 4.0 next uh, stable release that will otherwise fix the problem hmm. uh, because it's, you could stand a good chance of hosing your entire file system if oh, you don't. Oh, jeez. Uh, it also looks like uh, possibly re- dropping the discard mount option might help you avoid the issue, but in you know, is it really worth risking it? Uh, I'd <laughs> rather downgrade to known working code than yeah. like th- this one makes it seem to maybe not do it. Yeah. Uh, they say this isn't a problem for most Linux users because if you're using a distribution like RHEL or CentOS, Ubuntu, or others that are using a you know fixed release distribution, they're not going to be running the latest sure. 4.0 yeah. Yeah. Uh, Linux kernel. Mm-hmm. But if you're using something like Arch, mm, you, you could, could be in trouble. Yeah, you could. <laughs> Fact, why don't I check? Let's see which let's see which version of the kernel I'm using right now. I could be yes. on four oh, Alan. Let's take a look. It's been a couple of days. Uh, oh, I'm on four oh four already. But I actually use mm-hmm. XFS. Right? I don't know yeah. if the if the release is out yet. Well, this is the part that's confusing. They say the issue was caused by an MD commit uh, late in the kernel four oh release cycle. Yeah. Uh, the commit was you know, MD slash RAID 0 fixed bug with chunk size not a power of two. Yeah. So that suggests the problem is specific to RAID 0. And so it might not be specific to ext4, because if you're using XFS on a RAID 0, then why wouldn't that affect you there? Huh. So if it's an MD bug, then why mention ext4 specifically? It seems like you know a bunch of people using ext4 got hit with it, and it just happens that more people are using ext4 than something yeah, else. Yeah, that is a good point, because you're right. This is specifically a bug in MD if RAID. The, if, if the bug is caused by a commit to MD RAID and, you know... Uh, the fixes to do with the MD Git tree, then why does it specific to ext4? Or more importantly, is it not specific to ext4? Also, uh, is talking about fixing a bug if the chunk size is not a power of two, is that specific to RAID zero? It seems like the same thing would apply to RAID one and RAID five. Maybe not RAID five because you depends on how you stripe it. But uh, <laughs> the chat room's comment is uh, because people want to push for butter FS and so bash ext4 as much as possible. Actually, I have seen it. I have seen one of the recommendations going around is convert your file system to butter FS to avoid this, which just made me roll my yes, eyes. Yes, which is let, instead of having this one little bug that might corrupt your file system, yeah. now you have all of butter FS to melt your <laughs> file system. You have to melt it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, it's slightly alarming because ext4 was the one Linux file system that I thought might be kind of safe. This might be safe. Turns well, out maybe not. <laughs> I suppose if you don't use it in RAID zero or whatever, uh, right? Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it is it is disturbing, and these things obviously work their way into kernels from time to time. Yeah, and um, storage is complicated, uh, and I understand that. But yeah, it definitely makes you question if it's really a great idea to be running that latest for that. Mm. X development branch or four dot one, you know, checking up from Git yourself, yeah, you know, things like that. I think I think uh, the, this underscores how how dangerous it is to have a really frequently updated kernel in a production environment like that. Because just about a month ago, I had a workstation that was running Arch that couldn't boot because of a bug that affected ButterFS. So it was only a month ago that if you were using ButterFS on your root file system and you had a certain kernel version and a certain conditions, you wouldn't be able to boot. It was a hard lock. And now here we are a month later, and now it's extended four. Uh, and I'm sitting back thinking, well, thank God I went XFS. 
Um, it's kind of <laughs> pathetic. And it's, but really, this one, from the way that the information we have, it seems that XFS could be just as easily affected if it was on top of an MDB. Maybe. It, I mean, it looks like it, right? Uh, and isn't it interesting how, like, uh, so some guy from SUSE introduces this commit late in the uh, 4.0 cycle. Uh, it just yeah. That's the other thing. Um, is is do you not have rules about stuff like in in FreeBSD? Uh, like for example, ten point two is coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, the plan is to release it at uh, on the thirty first of August. Mm-hmm. So on like June nineteenth, uh, the code base will go into what's called the slush, which is. It's not actually frozen yet or anything, but we ask that you don't add, start, you stop adding new features, mm-hmm. right? Uh, new features should be avoided, and it's just about stabilizing the stuff we already have. Uh, and then on July 3rd, so just shy of two months before when we plan to release it, the code goes into freeze. Uh, so this isn't a branch. It's separate from you know regular development can continue, but the branch is frozen, and anybody who wants to change anything... To, in that has to get explicit approval from the release engineering team and show that, you know, this is fixing a problem or whatever, or this is really important and needs to get in. Uh, and, you know, we then release, you know, beta one, beta two, maybe beta three, mm-hmm. uh, once well, a week. It was to in, get those testing. I think, I th- and then we start release candidates one a week. And then, you know, my understanding was it was sort of in a phase like that, but because they were trying to fix another problem, it was a fix. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a last minute fix, and those are the ones that always bite you. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the really, this is why I think, like, on servers, if I'm going to run Arch, you got to use the LTS kernel. And, and this is why distros like CentOS and Red Hat still have a, a valid place in the, server system, in the server infrastructure, especially if you're running on a, a, file, ser- a file server. But to be honest, how can, how can anybody with any pragmatism that needs really good data integrity, and that's the primary f- uh, f- feature set, uh, how can anybody just go with anything besides like FreeNAS or FreeBSD for the file server at this point, if that's your core functionality requirement? Um, where, where, what, in what scenario is Linux the better recommendation if I need a Samba and NFS server and I have a lot of data? What scenario? I, I can't think of any. Although, you know, MD RAID is also seems to be something that you should avoid. Yeah, well, isn't that, doesn't that just sort of exacerbate the problem? Yeah. I, it's funny because uh, I just today was starting to, I was, I'm preemptively getting crap from the, the Linux Action Show subreddit about this bug because they know they know I'm going to get upset about this because they know me. They know that these kinds of things I think are embarrassing. I think they make Linux look well, like it's not know, ready for production. File systems and, in this case, I guess operating systems, get a reputation when right. they munge your file system this too is, often. This is kind this of is my why point. Even, even if it was perfect now, lots of people would still never use RiserFS because it had a history thank, of, thank you. of thank you. curdling your file system. Thank you. Uh, exactly. And, and I've you know, been the here, same I've thing's that. been said... Uh, like Brian Hentrell said the same thing about ButterFS. Mm-hmm. It's like if ButterFS is like, oh, it's it's young, it's still being worked on, you have to excuse it as an odd time right. when it loses right. your data. It's like, that's like saying, oh, well, the kid's only 12, we have to excuse him the odd time he steals cars and kills people. <laughs> right. Well, when he, when he turns 18, he'll magically just stop stealing cars and killing people. Uh, you know, the point was that ZFS was never in a state where it would curdle your files uh, and once it was released. Yeah. I mean, in, in practice, I've never, ever had a single data integrity issue with Extended 4, and I have with ButterFS, but I also... Yeah, Extended run- 4 has a lot of history where it's done pretty good. Usually, if you have a problem, it's a factor outside EXT4, right? Mm-hmm. It can't 
There's nothing well, you can do if your disk dies. And technically, so on, but, this wasn't a bug in Extended 4. Like, Extended 4 right. itself in, is still in, solid. In particular, I think Extended 4 is, is catching hell in this case, and it's possible that it's nothing to do with Extended 4 at all. Yeah, it was be MD raid. MD raid. Yeah. Yeah. Which is both good for it Extended just 4 that, like, and you bad know, the for all The first five Linux. people that reported this were yeah. people using Extended 4. Well, because it's the number one file system on Linux. Yeah, and it was seen as the common denominator when actually the problem was MD yeah. raid. Yeah, which so it's funny because that's that's good news for Extended Four. Yay, still a good file system, but that's bad for Linux because it could affect any file system that's using MD RAID in RAID Zero potentially. I guess the only audience would can tell us. Uh, I, I've never had a, I've never had any production. I guess issues the other thing I wonder is how much code is shared between like the MD RAID Zero and RAID One and so on. I'm just wondering how it compares to like the BSD's Geom system where it's classes and and there are a lot of shared code oh man all you know what all this makes me want to do alan makes me want to go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and get myself a free nas rig <laughs> yep so ix systems is the sponsor of the techsnap program and and they create systems built to take advantage of some of the best technology in open source and the way they've done that is first of all they build them around these incredible intel xeon processors they have the best experts in the field and i really mean that like from a hardware standpoint and when they don't have when that hardware expert doesn't work for them they have a deep partnership with the company so that way they essentially have access right to their engineers uh alan can maybe tell you more about that in a minute but it is it is very unique to ix systems and i like it a lot the other thing they have is they have the people that actually build the software you're going to be using people that are true experts on the people that are creating the code that runs on the metal that you're going to be deploying so that's a pretty good resource also plus then they combine all of that with their white glove service their burn-in testing before they ship it to you their great pricing and their willingness to build a solution that truly matches your needs not just one that checks a box on their sales goals and i that is so critical for for me and alan because it's a huge time saver when you call up one of their pre-sales people they will very 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 much help you they are very beneficial to the process instead of the layer you have to get through before you really start talking to the people to get it done it, it sounds like just a job title distinction or something, but instead of a salesperson, you're talking to a sales engineer. It's a difference. So this is someone who actually knows how to do ZFS and how to build the hardware and what the components I, do I guess and maybe which ones work together and which ones don't. The difference is IX takes that, that title seriously, so they make sure the people yes. in those positions can do it, and that's the difference, I suppose. Right. Like when I was building the, the machine I had in the basement, it's like, well, I have two options. I can uh, go with enterprise-class drives and... Uh, you know, a SAS expander would be able to fit more drives in the machine, or I can cheap out and go with direct wire, where I'm going to have you know a regular SATA cable going to each drive and then into a combiner and into the card, but I'll be limited to how many drives I can fit in the machine. Or if I want more than eight drives, I'm going to have to pay for a second controller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if I want to, I won't be able to have an external chassis of drives. And you know, if I do this, then you know, I can't have more than this many drives. Otherwise, the wiring just gets too complicated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the, I was able to have that discussion and use that information to make the decision on which one was going to work best for me. That's rocks, too. Uh, and yes, you know, the fact that they employ, you know, the guy who ports all the latest ZFS improvements over from Illumos into FreeBSD, you know, commits them like the day they're ready to come in, uh, works for IX. Yeah, uh, that works on the disk subsystem and makes sure that, you know, the SCSI layer and, and the actual interfaces to the disk are as fast as possible, works at IX, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, Talk about stacking the deck there. That's just such a exactly. great lineup. And then, and then the you know, it's, the people I ask questions to when I have questions about ZFS and FreeBSD work at IS. Right, exactly. Um, and and the other big one is you know the partnership with the, the vendors. Like 
uh, when LSI introduced their new 12 gigabit per second uh, SAS controllers, mm-hmm. right? The old ones were 60 per second, the new ones are 12. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, they're like, well, we could use a little help getting these uh, FreeBSD drivers going. They worked with IX, got that, and IX had uh, the beta drivers available in testing them. Uh, before That's anybody so else did, they work directly with the hardware manufacturer to get those drivers written, and then everybody else could take everybody else gets advantage of that later too, which is so slick. It's, exactly, it really helps. Um, and you know, speaking a higher of higher quality driver, fewer iterations, yeah. more. They also using uh, hardware. they also uh, they employ people like uh, Chris Moore, who just released the next version of PCBSD ten dot one dot two, which they have a write up on their site about. And it's another example of folks that they, uh, uh, you know, they they help pay the bills for. So Chris can go out and make the things that he makes that the community loves. Yeah. And on top of all of that, even though they're building all these crazy systems, they've also just been awarded the safest workplace, which is really cool, uh, from oh, uh, the cool. uh, Controllable Premium National Education Association, which is uh, it's, it's, it's a nice award. They got a big old award for it, too. So congratulations <laughs> to IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to check them out. And you can also download their white paper, and that helps support the TechSnap program. Let's IX know that uh, you heard about it here. It's really neat. And they're going to be at uh, some upcoming conferences. BSD can. I, I don't know if they're going to be at Self. They might be. They have a schedule, I think. Yeah. So check them out and say hi if you're going to be at an upcoming event. It should be pretty cool. Uh, and uh, I think Alan, they'll also be at uh, Texas Linux Fest as well. <laughs> hey, Alan, while we were talking here, uh, another BSD Now has hit the interwebs. Uh, mm-hmm. Episode 90 of BSD Now. And I'm happen, I happen to know the person that was the subject of the interview for this week's episode of BSD Now. In fact, it happened at yeah. Linux Fest Northwest. I, I, got to, I walked up while you guys were doing it. Is this, the first, is this the first BSD Now interview shot with a DSLR camera? Um, it's the first one. It's the first of the ones shot with the DSLR camera uh, that we've aired. Is it the first interview shot outside? No, oh. uh, I, I did an interview <laughs> with um, John Anderson on a, at a out on a patio um, on a belt uh, on a yeah, uh, okay, a I table. I do at remember that. That's awesome, Alan. That's awesome. <laughs> so uh, this episode features uh, and, friend of the network, actually, Jed. I, yes, uh, and also fitting for our last story, it's about how to use ZFS on Linux mm-hmm. and how that goes mm-hmm. and how it works very well. And maybe you should uh, give up your MD raid. Yeah. Yeah, after after that discussion in episode 90, I think you might be right. So uh, go check it out. BSD Now program. This is the halfway mark of the TechSnap show, so it's a perfect time to start the HD download of another show that has Alan's face in it, as well as Chris Moore and uh, all kinds of good info. Oh, uh, yes, Chris. Uh, Dan in the chat room who runs BSD Can uh, would like to know if you're coming to BSD Can. And if so, you should register today so that he buys enough T-shirts. How do I see? I don't think I can go because I still don't have a passport yet. I'm still waiting. Well, you're horrible. I know. Well, I know. I know. And the worst part is I even paid to have it expedited, so I am a horrible person. But uh, if I'm not there, Alan, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit back here crying and crying and waiting for a report. You're gonna be there though, so I guess we should probably tell people to come say hi to you. Where, where, and when? What's a good way for people to do that? Uh, I'll be at BSD Can the entire time. Which is uh, June 12th through the 13th. See, I was trying to get the info here. Uh, Ah, Yeah, 12th through the 13th in Ottawa, Canada. And you can come say hi to Alan. And uh, Chris Moore is going to be there? Uh, Yep. Cool. Also, technically, the conference actually starts on Tuesday night, June the 9th. Uh, And the 10th and 11th, there are tutorials if you're just a user. Or there's a developer summit, which is invite only. And registration for that's already closed. But uh, on the Tuesday night before the conference starts... There is the Goat Both, or Birds of a Feather session, and this is a, a, a newly uh, annual event where uh, Groff makes the appearance and uh, 
um, you know, where Groff was invented last year uh, <laughs> at this goat uh, for this goat bath, and everybody got their picture taken with Groff and uh, got to hang out uh, the night before the conference starts. So it's just a few weeks away, June uh, June twelfth through the thirteenth. That's a Friday yeah. and a Saturday at the University of Ottawa, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. I don't think I think by I think by boy if I if I think if I don't have my passport now how can I plan I just don't know. Well, just stick out to Canada, don't you? or I guess for I don't know. The chairman saying I might be able to get an enhanced driver's license. So I'm going to look into that next. But even yeah. still, the timing is getting so tight that it's it is. Yeah, I know. Uh, however, it does mean I will have it, so that's very exciting. So I will be tempted to go to all of the things now, which that could be interesting. So it might end up it might end up like breaking the dam. Who knows, uh, Alan? So that's all the news we have. I'd, I'd be great if you get the chance to see uh, Alan at BST Can. Um, maybe if I remember, I'll try to make a meetup uh, event for it, too, because we do have a Jupiter Broadcasting yes. meetup page at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. So we can put one together for BSD Can too, if I remember after today. But, Alan, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better. Starting a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, our first email this week comes in from Raul. I think that's it. Raul? How do you suppose you say that? I'm going to go with Raul. Uh, he says, hi there, Chris and Alan. I wonder if you could break down the ZFS fragmentation issue for me, which is interesting. I actually got this question in the IRC this morning as well. He says, when is ZFS fragmentation problematic what can i do about it and when will zfs get block pointer rewrite features thanks a lot and keep up the great work greetings from switzerland where he has gigabit internet for 70 dollars a month with no limits wow (laughs) uh so when is it problematic mostly when your disk is full uh so when your disk is very full there's and you want to say write a 128 kilobyte chunk uh, to your disk and there are no 128 kilobyte chunks of free space. Your disk is almost all the way full, and so the free space is scattered in a bunch of smaller pieces. And so ZFS has to scan all of its lists of free space and try to find the biggest chunk, Mm -hmm. and then stick the first chunk of your file there, and then it it looks for the next biggest chunk and sticks there, and and it can cause to slow down quite a bit. Uh, Things you can do about it are, A, not fill your file system. Uh, If you can keep at least 25 30% free space, then you're a lot less likely to run into this issue. Um, if you need to completely solve the issue, you can send all your data off, uh, wipe it out, and uh, send it back, uh, and that will. So solve basically, it. wipe clean, write, read, yeah. write the data back, and you're back mm-hmm. to a zero fragmented fragmented file system. Right. Although uh, ZFS has improved in this uh, regard quite a bit recently with things like the uh, free space histograms hmm. and the ZFS write performance and other stuff. Um, ZFS is now smarter and it can look up where the free space is a lot faster. Hmm. Uh, and so it can deal with the problem a lot better than it used to. Uh, but obviously, you know, it doesn't actually solve the problem. It just deals with it in a less bad way. Hmm. Uh, so, yes, uh, if you have the problem, the best way to solve it is get more free space uh, by either deleting stuff, although that doesn't quite solve the fragmentation as much. It depends how fragmented the stuff you're deleting is and how, you know, if you, if you have a fragment of free space, a chunk of file, and a fragment of free space, and you get rid of that chunk of file, that free space is now bigger, which is good. Uh, but if there's little bits left on either end or whatever, then it's, you know, mm-hmm. just as fragmented. <laughs> but if you expand the thing by, you know, if you're using mirror sets and you add a whole new VDEV full of... Uh, completely virgin free space, 
no more fragmentation problem for a little while until that space is all used up mm. or fragmented and so on. Uh, and then when will ZFS get block pointer rewrite? Probably never. Uh, you know, Matt Aaron says the, it's basically like trying to change your pants while running and he doesn't think it's actually going to be possible. And that's why you've seen a lot of the recent work, like the things to be able to remove a, a device from, uh, remove a VDEB from your pool, uh, because it, it has to do it a different way, because block pointer rewrite is not something that is probably actually going to be possible. Mm, okay. uh, it was part of the original design, yeah. uh, but there was a bunch of factors they failed to consider when they did the design. Oh. And as they got towards implementing it, it was like, oh, this design probably isn't going to work. Okay. That is really interesting. Fascinating to learn. Okay, Alan, our next email comes in from Avid. He says, hello there, Chris and Alan. Avid here again with a question. Some background. One of our web server certificates has suddenly started getting a broken icon in Chrome. And by the way, Firefox doesn't have this problem. This was despite the certificate being valid all the way up to the chain to the root issuer, Starcom Certificate Authority. We quickly realized that the reason Chrome is complaining was because the intermediate issuer certificate was signed with a SHA-1 RSA key and not something stronger. We've also found that our root issuer has another intermediate Starcom Certificate Authority G2 that is signed with SHA-256 RSA. Also, we set up certificates that we we hand out to contain the entire trust chain to, uh, to present to the clients. I thought that we would need to reissue the web server certificate with the intermediate CA that has the stronger algorithm, but it seems we only had to change the chain to present the stronger CA. The question is this, how is this possible? How is it that we can present an intermediate CA that didn't sign our website cert and this still remains valid? We suspect that it is the same intermediate CA, only two certificates, despite its name being different. Any insights would be greatly appreciated. Um, that one will come down to, I don't know if it has the same serial number or, or whatever, same private key, maybe it's the same certificate, but probably not. Um, I'm guessing it's just the browser doing the right thing and finding the intermediate or the intermediate's already in the trust store. And so it's just ignoring the excess one you're giving it. Oh, that's a good idea. That's probably exactly what it is, huh? Yeah, because I doubt that they're actually interchangeable. One way to try to tell maybe is actually if you run um, OpenSSL with its uh, connect or S client or whatever the one is where it can connect to like port 443 mm-hmm. uh, with SSL. Mm-hmm. Um and put it in debug mode, it'll walk through its logic of following the certificate chain and, and figuring out what uh-huh. one's trusted and so on. There you go. And that might help you see what would be accepted and what's not and so on. Uh, yeah, as far as what to do when your intermediate CA is SHA-1, I don't know that there's much you can do other than getting it reissued with one that's better. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know. And yes, the reason you're probably not seeing the problem in Firefox is that they're not uh, imposing that restriction just yet. They're you know, probably waiting for most people's SHA-1 certificates to age out, which should happen fairly soon. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Alan, our next email comes in from Handsome Dan. He says, to give a little background, I've been working in education IT administration for 15 plus years. This past year, I've been at it for a few schools as a programming teacher. But the IT admin is getting done, and it looks like I'll be stepping up into the admin role once again. The school has some pretty significant infrastructure issues, like 800-plus users authenticating to AD via wireless that has a 100-megabit backbone. So obviously, the first order of business is to beef up the network, which I'm totally comfortable with. Even more exciting than that is being able to implement a PFSense firewall solution with site-to-site VPN and remote VPN access for off-campus staff. The bigger issue is that they have a vSphere VM, three or four Windows VMs on each of the two servers, running vSphere on top of an end-of-life 2003 server OS. Ugh. I want... Or, uh, 
I want to get their servers migrated off this using uh, off this aging environment into a Linux-based solution, but I'm a total noob when it comes to VMs. Research shows that I can move the 300-plus gigabytes of VM images to external storage, configure the server how I want it, with Linux, of course, and then move them back on and cross my fingers hoping I can get the whole thing working. Am I on the right track? Love the show. Thanks for the input. Dan. I don't know about doing that with vSphere specifically. Um, it depends. He, I guess he doesn't really mention which solution he wants to switch to. Like, yeah, which is the virtualizer on the other from, end? Right. Yeah, is he moving away from VMware then is the question, that I guess? Was, that was my guess. Cause you could, so here's what I was thinking. is If he's going to move away from VMware and he's going to Linux, then he's probably going to go Zen or KVM or VirtualBox. Right. Uh, and either way, isn't the core thing what he really needs to do is get those VMDK files and convert them to an image format that whatever virtualizer he's going to can read, well, or maybe that virtualizer can already read them? every virtualizer can read VMDK, yeah. or at least some version of VMDK. Right. depends. I imagine how many special features are in use and so on. But if he's using something that's based on 2003, is probably the supported mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, the bigger one is is converting the VM config. Right. The, mm-hmm. Yeah. This is how much RAM it has. This is what the MAC addresses of the He's NIC probably cards have are. To set all that up manually. Because those are probably what uh, set to the. Yeah. Uh, you know what Windows licenses are tied to, and so on. He's going to lose the MAC addresses, and so Windows is going to react. Well, they're it. usually uh, you can specify the MAC address. Yeah. In it might be able to. And yep, and yep. So on. That might fix it. But he, I would, I would be prepared for major hardware changes. It might look like a different motherboard to the to the virtual machine. It might look like a different network controller or video card. So just be yeah, prepared for major hardware virtualizers changes. virtualizers is hard. But the good news it is he could, he could move it and see what happens. And if it blows up, just fire the old one back up. I mean, you know, you can do this in testing. Move one at a time and see what happens and see what process works for you. Don't do it all over at once. Just try one and see what happens. Yeah, so basically on a weekend, shut down the VMs and copy the VMDK and all the other files. Mm-hmm. Uh, to a new server or something, and then boot the old ones back up. People come in on Monday, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And then you have basically have a test lab now where you can you know, copy those VMDK files, try the conversion, and try to get everything working uh, you know, with it restricted not talk out to the network at all and until you get the machine booting properly and recognizing all the right. hardware and doing all of its right things. And then you can slowly transition. And then when it's time... Uh, again, on a weekend or something when people aren't using them, you can shut down those servers, get a fresh copy of the VMDK, uh, apply your process of converting it to the new virtualizer, and then fire it up, and you've got all the data exactly how it was. Love it. All right, Ryan writes in with a double PF sense gateway question. He says, hey, guys, like any enterprise network administrator, I enjoy blocking both inbound and outbound non-essential ports on the corporate firewall cluster. <laughs> and naturally, that mindset applies to the PFSense py- firewall at home as well. A few weeks ago, I tried deploying the Squid package on PFSense, and I found that it's bypassed all of my outbound rules as the PFSense box proxied all of my outbound traffic as it should. After pondering for a solution, I think I have one but wanted your opinion. Using a few physical ports or some VLANs, could I make myself, my PFSense box, the next hop? probably from, he means from Squid, be my own default gateway for my gateway, then I could apply the Squid proxy transparently to that interface. Wouldn't this allow me to still apply the outbound firewall policies after that, after applying the proxy filtering? Heck, now that I think about it, could I just create some loopback interface and use those? I think I could do this without creating a double NAT by routing everything past the outbound NAT. I know this is an e- I know the easy way out is just to spin up another system, configure a proxy, and put it in between the PFSense box and my ISP, but I really hate to do that. You know, Power, heat, space, blah, blah, blah. Thanks for your input, Ryan. But I think 
is mostly just being too complicated. Uh, in PFSense, there are a pair of rules that allow anything from the firewall out to the internet so that when you're in the admin interface on the firewall, you can test stuff and make sure the internet works without you know, stepping on your own firewall. Mm-hmm. You could just modify those there? rules yeah. to, to, to block what you want to block, and then the squid will be blocked. And so that uh, means PFSense itself is going to be blocked, your box. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, because squid is running on PFSense, if you want to stop squid from doing something, then you would block the firewall itself from doing that yep uh so they're in there somewhere in the rules there's uh rules in pf sense that say you know allow the firewall out to everything uh and you'll just want to modify that and add some restrictions to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the squid transparency i don't go ahead i'm trying to think which interface or where those rules actually live in the gui i, I, I do not remember off the top uh, of my head at all because my pf's firewall system now is my old pfSense, I logged into the SSH interface and dumped the rules to a file yeah. using the pf status command yeah. uh, and then fired it up on a regular FreeBSD with the old pfSense rules and then I've been modifying them by hand ever since. I like that. Uh, basically I just kept my old pfSense firewall when I switched to using vanilla FreeBSD so I could run other stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in there there's a set of rules that allow the firewall to do everything. I leave that for myself because that's how I debug firewall issues. If it works on the firewall but not from behind the firewall, then the problem is the firewall. If it doesn't work on the firewall, then the issue is upstream. Well put. I think that's his solution. There, like, and like, like he says, there's a lot of ways he could engineer it. I, he could even probably figure out a way to put another box in there if he wants. But yeah, but uh, Alan's the, a simple solution. The main one straightforward. But <laughs> if if you basically you can't have two different default routes unless you get into using the um, mm. what do they call them. Mm. Fibs, forward information bases, and having separate ones. In general, uh, you if your default gateway is yourself, then you can't then for the next hop have the default gateway not be yourself. Uh, and so, you know, wiring a, a nick out of the back of your PFSense that goes back into your PFSense or whatever isn't going to help. <laughs> and the same with the loopback. The the kernel's going to do all the logic and come up with the yeah. final conclusion in one step. And so that's not really going to work. But yes, uh, the problem is just that your firewall is set to allow everything from the firewall itself, and you'll want to modify that rule slightly. There you go. Now, if you'd like to get your question answered on the TechSnap program, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and send it in. We love to get all of your system admin questions, anything security, systems, all that kind of, even hardware stuff. We love it. And also, the subreddit is a great place, too, techsnap.reddit.com. If we record it a week ahead, so maybe we're off a week, so we delay a little bit, or maybe there's a community member yeah, out there that like, has the perfect know, answer. Next week? Yeah, like next week. If you need an answer right away, the subreddit is a great place because we will be pre-recording next week's episode. So that's great. That's for time purposes. It's great. But also, it lets other folks in the community know what you're struggling with. It kind of helps build a little sense of community in the subreddit. So we appreciate that as well. But with the feedback all done, it is indeed time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup of Stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from that subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And just going right back to a topic we just discussed a little bit ago when we were covering that Brian Krebs story, the U.S. is aiming to limit exports of undisclosed software flaws. So this time it's not limiting encryption capabilities as it is zero-day Knowledge, perhaps? What are your thoughts, Alan? Right, well, the interesting one is, you know, you take the same story and you word it in the programming terms, and the U.S. is looking to stop the export of undisclosed software flaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take it the other way, the U.S. is looking to prohibit the export of pen testing tools uh, requiring people to have a license. 
Yes. Right. Very true, isn't that is essentially another yes. way to put it. Yeah. So it, I understand. Yes, I agree that companies shouldn't be allowed to sell zero day exploits. Right. That's, you know, it looks like the Commerce Department Bureau of Industry and Security is proposing requiring a license in order to export certain cybersecurity tools used for pen test systems and analyzing network communications. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, it, that's a lot different than blocking the export of undisclosed zero days. Right, like if if you're looking at uh, what was the name of that horrible company that has a catalog full of zero days and they sell them? Yeah, uh, not Vupin. Vupin. Uh, Vupin. Yes, it yeah. is Vupin. Vupin. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, stopping companies like Vupin from selling zero day exploits because those are equivalent of you know weapons, mm-hmm. I agree with. Stopping people from downloading metasploits so that they can Here's pen the test out. their own systems is something entirely different. So, Vupen and, and FireEye and, uh, Man- uh, not Mandy, there's no, what's the other one? What's the other big one that we always talk about? The, the, the cybersecurity firms? They, get this, they've been issued a pre-license, even though there isn't a license that exists yet. They've been pre-authorized <laughs> to, to do this stuff. So, like, if you work with them, you're, you are pre-authorized to use these tools by working with these companies. They've already been granted it. it, it well, because if you remember when we looked at the Rapid7 one, which is a company that makes Metasploit, uh, they're saying, you know, if you're not from the U.S. or Canada, you need a license. And if you're from a government, you get nothing. <laughs> you get nothing. And so I think this blanket license is so uh, FireEye can still have government customers. I guess the uh, the uh, the members of the Five Eyes um, um, uh, intelligence sharing, like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, U.K., U.S., uh, they will have lesser restrictions. Yeah. Interesting story. But Sometimes yeah. I feel like we live so, in a crazy world. It's just really interesting how different the, the title can slant the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, it's like, yes, I agree that we should stop companies from selling or people from selling zero days. But at the same time, I don't believe we should be stopping people from getting pen tested tools like Metasploit. And anybody who thinks the two things are the same thing is wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're critical tools. I mean, they're critical tools yeah. to properly secure your network. Yes. One's a tool for checking your stuff. The other one is a tool for breaking other people's stuff. How do you right. even do? How do you even do a complete job without those tools? How can you even? Exactly. You can't. You can't. You can't confirm your work. How do you, you protect yourself against the latest zero day without a tool to tell if the protection is working? It's crazy. And and then they claim it's all in in the name of cybersecurity and protecting IT infrastructure. Uh, let's let's talk about Sherry. You want to talk about Sherry? Cherry. Cherry. As in, like yeah. the as in, as in Chris can't read. Yeah, Cherry. Yeah. Cherry. I hybrid. Well, it's a, it's a hybrid capability system architecture for scalable software compartmentalization. Say what? <laughs> so this is uh, taking the concept of um, Capsicum on FreeBSD, uh-huh. uh, which is a capability framework for software, and promoting it to act the the restrictions to actually live in the CPU. Oh. Uh, so Cherry is the uh, um, extends a new regular RISC processor instruction set, the compiler and the operating system, and so on, to support fine grained capability based memory protection to mitigate memory-related vulnerabilities in C languages. Uh, so this will stop buffer overflows and stuff because you can basically say, hey, you're not allowed to touch that piece of memory. Uh, so they described how the Cherry capability models will underpin a hardware-slash-software object capability model for application compartmentalization uh, to basically stop broader types of attacks. So uh, their prototype is an extension of the open-source 64-bit Berry processor, hmm. which is a RISC-F uh, FPGA mm-hmm. uh, using, and then they use the FreeBSD software, uh, FreeBSD operating system, and LLVM as the compiler. And uh, 
their own uh, memory management unit to enforce the restrictions. Hmm. So this is a paper from the uh, IEEE conference that's taking place in Oakland uh, right now, or less this week anyway, uh, and uh, it's being presented there. So I figured we'd get uh, people access to that early since uh, a big number of the researchers working on it are uh, FreeBSD people. Ah, uh, yeah, I heard there's, I read in the chat room, there's, there's going to be a talk about it at BSD can as well, huh? Yes. Ooh, fancy, fancy, Adam, fancy, fancy. All right, this next story, no good. The NSA and also its 5i partners uh, plan to hijack the Google App Store links to hijack smartphones. So uh, stick with me here for a second. But the essential uh, uh, effort here was called Irritant Horn. That was what they called the effort. And it was the agencies developing a method to hijack users' connections to things like the Google Play Store and Samsung's custom app store for Samsung phones. So that way they'd be able to send malicious, quote-unquote, implants to targeted devices. The implants would then be used to collect data from the phones without the users noticing. Uh, this is coming from the Snowden Disclosures. It was launched by the uh, Five Eyes uh, team. Let's see. I forgot the – yeah, here we go. Back in November 2011. Uh, CBC News is one of the first that published the report on this on Wednesday, yesterday, and all as well as The Intercept. Um, and they're including the links to the documents that outline it. So, yeah, basic idea is that next time your Google uh, – your Android phone goes to check for an update – uh, the NSA says, oh, look, hey, there's a new update for Google Voice, the thing that does the OK Google or whatever, some app that every Android has that you can't mm-hmm. not have mm-hmm. from Google. Uh, and it's, oh, there's a newer version of it. Uh, and it's not from Google. It's from the NSA. And it has spyware. And it, now everybody's phone is a listening device or whatever. Yeah, uh, they, you know. they wanted to also build a – they said the agencies wanted to do more than just hijack the app stores. They, want, they were also keen to find ways to hijack them as a way of sending selective misinformation to targets' handsets as a part of a so-called effects operation that used to spread propaganda or confuse adversaries. Moreover, the agencies wanted to gain access to the company's app store servers so they could secretly use them for harvesting information about phone users. Yep. Good times. Good times. All right, next story in the roundup. Slow progress forces Navy to change strategies for cloud and their data centers. Yes, Uh-oh. so the, <laughs> the U.S. Navy might not end up using the cloud and consolidating down to a small number of data centers. Uh, and in particular, uh, part of this one is, oh, we've spent a bunch of time and we're not to the end yet, so let's scrap it all and make the IT administration part of a different part of the Navy now. Oh. Uh, so instead of being part of uh, NAVC or whatever, yeah. the Guys that actually built this is going to be a new department under a different DACO, DCAO, DACO. Yeah. Responsible for establishing a working model for the Navy cloud hosting service brokerage. Hmm. Yeah, it's like the cloud isn't working. Let's start over and use the cloud this time. <laughs> yeah, this time this time we'll get it right by using the cloud. Uh, it's like because our, our last I attempt to that. use the cloud didn't work. Yeah, I, I don't know why. <laughs> it's like you repeat the same thing over and over again. I don't know why it's going to be any better, but uh, you know what? Same thing could be said about these uh, these uh, little routers people are buying at home, like these Netgears. Yeah. Uh, the net USB driver flaw is exposing millions of routers to potentially hacking over the network. Now, you know about these net USB devices, and that's what they call it. That's the technical name. It's a Linux kernel driver, and different vendors have different names for it. Like Netgear calls it like print share um, or file share. Like, the, you know, it's, if you have a router that has a USB port, you can plug a drive or a USB uh, printer into. Ah, yes. I've seen a, a lots of these where, it's, yeah, it's got a USB port. You can plug an external hard drive in, and then you're router becomes a NAS, yeah. or you plug a printer in and it becomes a print server. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is CVE 2015-3036, uh, and it affects the NetUSB kernel code module, uh, and it's 
used by a lot of different manufacturers, a security flaw, which was uh, uh, reported by a, consult, a, a researcher, can be triggered when a client sends the computer name that is longer than 64 characters to the TCP port 20,005. So if you have a character, if you have a name in your machine name longer than 64 characters and you send a packet to this port, that's all you have to do to trigger a buffer overflow. Job's done. Set yep. your host name longer than 64 characters <laughs> and tell that to or that port. send a fake one <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and type out a long name. And mm-hmm. after the 64th character, start putting code right. uh, for what you want to happen yep. and boom. Yep. So uh, it, it affects apparently it affects ev- everything. A huge list of uh, all net vendors. all of them, all of them basically. Trident, TP Link, uh, Netgear, Encore, uh, D Link, um, IO Gear, Hockey and Technology, Western Digital. I'm just trying to name a few of the popular ones because those are ones yep. people. Netgear, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. And these little routers are just a disaster. And I know I've said it a million times now on the TechNet program, but these are the precursor to the Internet of Things. And the lessons that we learn or don't learn here will or will not be applied to the Internet of Things devices. That's all Chris is saying. Well, the worst one is, you know, some of these devices, uh, you know, they build it based on, you know, the NetUSB driver they download. And then when they build the next version, they keep using the old version instead of updating their NetUSB driver. Right. Uh, And so it's it's kind of like the, um, the, what was it, the uh, UPnP driver. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly like that. Uh, And so... Even though there's a newer one now, I bet the devices that are under construction right now aren't going to use it. They're going to keep using the old vulnerable one. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure out of this long list of brands, a bunch of them are never going to release an update. Oh, yeah. 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 And then, and then even the, ones that, even the brands that do and, but, won't update all their devices. Yeah. Or, yeah, they'll either be like, oh, we're only supporting things that are recently released, older stuff, buy a new one. Uh, or, and even if they do release a patch for everyone, most people aren't going to install it. So uh, let's. Although this one apparently uh, is only exploitable on the LAN, it's not like it's from the internet, but yeah, still. Yeah. Uh, did you catch the story about the uh, submarine network operator? That uh, I guess it's yes. like he hit like a so, cable or something. What happened, Alan? <laughs> uh, Telstra is uh, a big ISP, and they just bought this other company that operates a submarine cable that services most of Asia. Right? Okay. It's called PacNet because okay. for Pacific, mm-hmm. uh, and apparently they. Uh, Got hacked. Uh, so Telstra, which oh, is a I big uh, yeah. Australian telecommunications company, bought uh, <laughs> PacNet and recently learned that they're the victim of a cyber attack that targeted email and administration systems and potentially exposed sensitive right. data on thousands of businesses and government customers of PacNet. Looks like it happened on April 16th, and uh, it happened right before the, right before Tesla bought them. So they bought, they bought some yeah, damaged in the goods. Of buying them or whatever. <laughs> Ouch! Makes you wonder uh, if somebody so on it, the go- somebody on the inside, <laughs> on the way out, was like, "All right, screw you guys." Yeah, or, but it's also the, you know, uh, sometimes the kind of thing you expect during one company taking over another is like they're in the middle of transitioning stuff and mm-hmm. firewalls get opened up or something to let one network talk to the other and then bad things happen, but apparently this is all before that. Yeah. Anyway, this is, uh, according to Telstra, it's still unclear whether personal information of PacNet customers had actually been exposed to theft, but it is suggests that it's been uh, the intent of those behind the attack to get access to that information, so they probably did. Uh, it says, while we uh, look into this, uh, who, while we look into who is behind the breach, we may never know uh, exactly who it was. At least they're not just pointing fingers. Uh, they say we have uh, not had any contact with the perpetrators, so we don't know why they did it. Right. Uh, okay, Alan. Our next story, uh, Chris Roberts managed to grab our audience's attention uh, when he claimed that he was able to hack a plane mid-flight and cause it to 
I think bank is what he said or something like that. He overwrote code, he said, on the thrust management computer. And this has been getting a lot of people's attention because he supposedly did it by connecting to the in-flight Wi-Fi entertainment system and then compromised the thrust controller computer from that network. Uh... Now, this has been torn up. Do you have any comments on this? Well, weird, because, you know, when this originally happened, he wasn't admitting that. And now the FBI says he admitted it. But I haven't heard anything from him. It's weird. Yeah, he says, while, so while on board the flight, he tweeted a joke about taking control of the plane's engine, indicating the crew alerting system, uh, which provides the flight crews with information of real-time aircraft functions, including temperatures of various equipment. Uh they say they, complex, they the FBI confiscated his iPad, his MacBook Pro, and his storage devices. Um, United has launched uh, uh, this. Remember last week we talked about the bug pounding program? They think it might have yeah. been related to this. I, I don't – I just – I can't believe this story. And I know, I know that – I have actually seen people break it down and I haven't had a chance to read this yet. But uh, one of the things I read is that those two systems are physically separated. They're not, they're not on the same – other than the only, the only two – connectivity that the thrust control system and the entertainment system have is that they may somehow be on the same power bus. But outside of that, there is no physical connection of the two systems. So unless he's using power line networking and he's got a power line networking hooked up to the thrust management system and a power line networking system hooked up to his laptop, there doesn't seem to be a way he could communicate from one system to the other. In fact, the takedown that I read is that the thrust control system doesn't even use TCP IP to manage it. So I, I guess he would have, I mean, I'm not exactly sure how this could have occurred. Well, especially this is a, a 737-800. It's not that new. So I don't know. Uh, I would like to hear more from Roberts himself because all we have is what the FBI is saying that he might have said or something. Uh, uh, and there's a bunch of like quotes that I kind of read as air quotes in some of these statements and maybe he yeah. used sound transmission and he jumped the air gap with sound maybe he well, used hint. it's entirely possible that <laughs> some of it isn't as air gapped as it should be maybe but yeah, yeah um, maybe just because I'm just reading somebody's takedown I mean I don't I've never I've never looked at it so yeah well, they have the affidavit from the actual warrant application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where they're getting the statement uh, from. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I love how there's a, he gained access to or hacked the IFE system. Yeah, so our Royal Gabe says maybe if he bounced off a satellite. So he used the Wi-Fi connection to get out to a satellite connection and then come back into the plane from the management interface and managed it that way. <laughs> that might have been how he did it. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> He moved out to the wings. <laughs> There's something on the wing. <laughs> okay, let's yeah, go. From, we'll have to see where that goes. <laughs> let's go from airplanes to submarines, Alan. What happened with this story? Under the water. Uh, yes. So um, the Trident submarines, which are the nuclear submarines that the UK has, uh, a member of the crew of one of the submarines has become a whistleblower and says that the nuclear subs are insecure, unsafe, and just a disaster waiting to be uh, to waiting to happen. Oh, I know. That sounds uh, good. That, the security policies, uh, when they're docked in port and so on, apparently are not good enough. Surprise, surprise, Alan. So there's a, a long write-up here. Yeah, there is. Uh, talking about some of the issues and uh, so on. Uh, so he wrote an 18-page report called The Nuclear Secrets, which claims to lift the lid on the alarming state of UK's aging and short-staffed nuclear deterrent force. Hmm. 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 
I think about I think about how sometimes we talk about all this all of this uh, network security stuff, and then there's just basic physical physical security that doesn't get taken care of for this kind of stuff. Exactly. You know, and we've talked about the same problems with uh, the U.S. Uh, missile silos and being staffed by people that are asleep or not showing up or faking their tests to pass to keep their jobs and stuff like that. Now, tell me about this flaw that exposed a lot of data for customers uh, that uh, Fast Company has a write-up on. I didn't catch this. Uh, so they have a uh, report of a flaw at Charter, which is a really mm-hmm. large uh, cable company. Yep. They serve like 28 different states in the U.S. And ISP uh, as well, say, yeah. Yeah, they're basically a big internet ISP as well as a cable company. Yeah. Uh, so a security researcher discovered the cable provider's vulnerability to uh, during part of his research and demonstrated how a simple header modification performed with a browser plugin could reveal details about charter internet subscribers. Oh, I did uh, hear about this. Yes. Uh, the vulnerability could reveal personal information about millions of customers uh, who are the company's subscribers. Uh, they said the vast majority of Charter customers use a version of the site on which the security vulnerability uh, was not an issue, mm, okay. but that the number of customers affected was less than one million. Uh, as if, you know, that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, Charter says they've seen no evidence of passwords or data being hacked so far. Okay. And they say the exposed data does not include credit card numbers. Good. Well, that's, that's refreshing. I hope that means they still get free Experian coverage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the researchers discovered the issue uh, along with his colleague after finding a similar vulnerability in Verizon's online customer system. Uh, it, although for Verizon, it only exposed the user ID, phone number, and device name. Okay. Uh, whereas the, the amount of user information exposed by Charter was way, way, way more. <laughs> well, so, uh, I didn't Charter get bit by site this identified its customers through their IP address akin to the way that automated uh, Customer support online to identify customers by the phone number. Uh, thus, obtaining a subscriber's IP address is all an attacker would need to see their account details. Then, if you just fake the X forwarded for header in HTTP, the web server would believe that you were coming from the user's IP address. And then you could just impersonate every IP in the range from Charter and see each different customer's information. Um, yeah, if you're going to allow the X forwarded for a header, you have to only accept the header from servers you trust to set it to the right IP address. You can't just willy-nilly accept the X forwarded for a header from anybody. That's, this is some lame security at Charter. <laughs> I'm surprised that's as nicely as you put it. <laughs> it's the lame is putting it very nicely. Yeah, well, I, I, I just not surprised at, it at all. U.S. cable companies are the worst. Millions of customers exposed. Millions of customers. Thanks, Charter. 4.7 million customers, yep. Thanks, Charter. Mr. Jude, is there anything else we need to cover in today's episode of the TechSnap program? Nope. Oh, all right, good. Because I'll tell you what, that's all I got. That's all the notes I got. So I thought if there was something more, it was going to be a surprise to me. Here, I'll give you a few tips. We do need your emails. We do need your questions. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact or TechSnap.reddit.com. Also, be sure you can tune in live. I mean, why not? Just make the time available except for next week. Don't do it next week. We won't be live. So outside of next week, join us uh, over at jblive.tv on Thursdays. We do this show live at 1 p.m. Pacific. Alan, what is that in some other crazy time zone? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Probably. Uh, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. And don't I mean, forget. Probably. That's exactly correct. <laughs> okay. 
And also don't forget jvlive.info for the audio-only version of the show, which, I don't know, maybe a theater of the mind type person. Maybe you got to listen on the go. I'm not you. I don't know. Just do it. And don't forget about those RSS feeds, too. Then you get the show automatically every single week that we come out. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>